All right, let's get started with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our study this morning. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for just another beautiful day and uh, just the joy to be able to gather together, encourage one another, uh, challenge one another, and uh, we just pray that you would bless our time in your word, give us wisdom, give us understanding. God, we thank you that uh, you've not left us to try to uh, figure things out on our own. God, you've given us your word. You've revealed to us the truth of who you are, uh, what you've accomplished, uh, both in creation all the way through redemption and uh, ultimately just the future uh, fulfillment of uh, this redemption plan. And so, God, we just pray you'd uh, give us understanding to your word today. Uh, help us to see uh, just your glory through it. Uh, God, we lift the uh, service up to you in just a little bit as well. I'll be with Pastor Justin as he brings your word. And uh, we lift all the events of the day up to you. Uh, the other equipped classes going on right now with the kids and with the teens and uh, kids club and youth group tonight. God, we just pray that today you would be magnified uh, through your uh, church here in Dale. And uh, we just pray that you would allow the gospel to go out and for us to have uh, conversations, encouragement uh, toward one another as well today. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are finally going to get to Genesis 1, 1. We uh, did a little bit of introductory stuff last week uh, before actually diving into the text and uh, just talking about foundation for a worldview, talking about um, different aspects, uh, background information, the author of who we believe the author of Genesis is, um, some of the background there. So now we're going to dive into the text. And before we do, I want to share this illustration that John Phillips shared in his commentary He says, Harold Fortescue, a budding newspaper reporter, was sent to cover a local social function. It was his first assignment. He expanded himself and submitted to his editor two dozen pages of typewritten oratory. The editor did not even glance at it, but handed it back right back with the words, cut it in half. Crestfallen, Fortescue complied. Again, the editor handed it back with the dry comment, cut it in half again. Grumbling under his breath, the youthful reporter did as he was told. When he handed in the finished article, the editor handed it back once more. Now, reduce it to a single page, he said. The horrified reporter ventured a protest. His boss cut him off. Young man, he said, you have evidently overlooked the fact that when the creator of the universe gives his account of creation, he does so in ten words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we see here in the very opening verse, and really throughout the chapter, there's a lot of simplicity to this first verse and to the chapter as a whole, Um, but there's there's a lot of profound information as well, even though it's simply written. And so I want us to, as we think about this creation account, I want to share with you uh, another creation account, the Babylonian creation epic, and I want you to... As I read this, listen to the difference between uh, God's revealed uh, story of creation, what we believe uh, actually happened and what we see recorded in Genesis 1, and that of the Babylonians, which a lot of people say that uh, Genesis was just copied from different uh, cultural creation stories. But I want you to see the difference in this. So this is the Babylonian creation epic. So this is their version of creation. It starts in the same way. In the beginning... Then it strays from there. There were two gods. 
Apsu and Tiamat, who represented the fresh waters, male, and the marine waters, female. They cohabited and produced a second generation of divine beings. Soon, Apsu was suffering from insomnia because the young deities were making so much noise. He just could not get to sleep. He wanted to kill the noisy upstarts. Despite the protests of his spouse, Tiamat, but before he managed to do that, Ea, the god of wisdom and magic, put Apsu to sleep under a magic spell and killed him. Not to be outdone, wife Tiamat plotted revenge on her husband's killer and those who aided the killing. Her first move was to take a second husband, whose name was Kingu. Then she raised an army for her, re- her retaliation plans. At this point, the gods appealed to the god Marduk to save them. He happily accepted the challenge on the condition that if he was victorious over Tiamat, they would make him chief of all the gods. The confrontation between Tiamat and Marduk ended in a blazing victory for Marduk. He captured Tiamat's followers and made them his slaves. Then he cut the corpse of Tiamat in half, creating heaven from one half of it and the earth from the other half. He ordered the earlier supporters of Tiamat to take care of the world. Shortly thereafter, Marduk conceived another plan. He had Kingu killed and arranged for Ea to make man out of his blood. In the words of the story, man's lot is to be burdened with the toil of the gods. To demonstrate their gratitude to Marduk, the gods then helped him to build the great city of Babylon and its imposing temple. So you see a few differences between the Babylonian creation account and the biblical one. What, what are some differences that you notice between Genesis 1-1 and really we could say 1-2 and that of this Babylonian creation epic? What are some differences you notice? A lot longer, a lot wordier. What else? A lot of gods running around, absolutely. What, what are these gods like? They're sinful. They're basically like Greek or Roman gods. They're just exalted humans, right? They're just powerful human beings. They still have sin. They still have needs like sleep, uh, eating. They can be bothered, things like that. There's jealousy. There's rivalry between them. Um, the need for companionship. Uh, creation of man and creation of everything is really done in selfish motivation. Um, and, of course, you see man is sort of an afterthought. Man is created to uh, only serve, like be a slave to these gods and to toil in that way. Okay. Um, the, I pulled that, that creation epic from uh, a Bible study that the Navigators put out, and they say this about that story as well. The Babylonian story is wordy and elaborate, while Genesis 1 uses only 76 different word forms fundamental to all mankind. So think about that. 76 in this whole chapter, root words in, in laying out God's creation. So very simple, uh, and it says um, it's arranged in a wonderful poetical pattern, yet free from any highly colored figures of speech. It is intelligible to any child yet includes all the essential facts of creation. So what we see in Genesis 1 is the simplicity of the words laid out, but we're going to see even just in the first verse, just how profound, how much there is just in this first verse. Uh, Frederick A. Philby says this, it provides the perfect opening to God's book 
and establishes all that men really need to know of the facts of creation. No man could have invented it. It is as great a marvel as a plant or a bird. It is God's handiwork, sufficient for Hebrew children or Greek thinkers or Latin Christians, for medieval knights or modern scientists or little children, for cottage dwellers or cattle ranchers or deep sea fishermen, for Laplanders or Ethiopians, east or west, rich or poor, old or young, simple or learned, sufficient for all. Only God could write such a chapter, and he did. So we see this amazing first chapter, and it opens with this amazing first verse. So let me just read it again. We're very familiar with this. might have a little bit of difference in translation, but a lot of the translations I looked at just actually were word for word the same. And so from the ESV, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so let's unpack this. One word or one phrase at a time, we'll kind of take it one Hebrew word at a time. Uh, And the first word there in the ESV is in the beginning, or that first phrase, which is actually one Greek word. Does anyone remember from last week? Uh, It's what we get the name for the Hebrew uh, book. We we call it Genesis Origins, but the Hebrew uh, version is this word. Anyone remember? I probably only mentioned it. Did you say something, Ryan? Okay, Genesis is what we, yeah, what we as... Uh, what the I think the Latin Vulgate, um, what we in English have called this book, Origins or Generations. Um, but it's actually the word Bereshith, okay? The Hebrew word Bereshith. It's um, translated in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as enarche, which is the exact same word used in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So same word, same idea, in the beginning, And so we have to stop and ask the question, what is this beginning referring to? So in the beginning, what is this beginning referring to? Joseph. Time and space, space, okay? Other thoughts? Okay, yeah, it's the beginning of of time specifically, I would say. We're going to see throughout this verse, this verse captures the picture of the beginning of time Space and matter, right? What makes up uh, our, our known universe? Time, space, and matter. But here we see really the beginning of time. Time set in a place, and really as we look at this ver- first verse, some will look at this as a summary for the rest of the chapter. So uh, in some translations, and, and, and just in doing some research, I don't think they're the best way to, dis- to translate it, but some say in, when God began to create, instead of in the beginning God created, and they see it as sort of a summary statement of the rest of chapter 1. However, it seems fitting, and, and I don't want to get into the technical details of all this, but in, typically in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, they wouldn't have this long, elaborate sentence like you might find in other languages. And so it seems that this is more the first event of day 1. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. There was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated light from darkness. And God called the light day. The darkness he called night. And there was evening. There was morning the first day. So this is all within one day. So this is the first creative act on day one. Okay? Um, So in the beginning, the beginning of time, the start of God's creative work. So is God, God here is already existing so when time starts god has already been on the scene so 
Let's move on to the next word, which is God. Anyone know what name of God is mentioned here? I might have mentioned that last week as well. Yeah, Elohim, right? Which is a sign of the, really it means power, strength, glory. It's a picture of uh, God's, you know, this powerful God, okay? Which makes sense why we'd use this in the creation story. Here we're going to see God doing some amazing, powerful, creative acts. Uh, John Phillips said, God is mentioned by name 32 times in 31 verses. So in this first chapter, we're going to see God mentioned time and time again. Uh, This chapter, and we could say Scripture as a whole, is centered upon God, not man, right? So God is here throughout, and so Elohim is the name used. It stresses God's majesty, His omnipotence. Uh, This word is actually a plural noun, okay? So this is what's interesting, plural noun. It can, could be translated as gods, but uh, it, it's not in the beginning the gods created because the word, the verb we're going to talk about in a minute, created, is in a singular form, okay? So here, even in the beginning, we see a glimpse of the Trinity at work, right? We see God in three persons, even in the name Elohim. So Elohim, plural, created singular okay and so we see this trinitarian nature of god just a glimpse of this even in the opening chapters we see it again in in uh, verse 26 where it says let us make man in our image after our likeness so there's already glimpses in the first chapter of what the new testament unpacks in greater depth of the trinity the father son holy spirit we see it even in verse 2 the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters okay In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the primary person of the Godhead doing the creating. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, speaking of Jesus, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I think we've talked about that before. Firstborn doesn't necessarily mean first in uh, order as far as first. You know, some people take that verse and say Jesus was the first being created, and then he created everything else. Uh, as we see later in the chapter, it mentions he's the firstborn from the dead, meaning he's the of most importance, the highest in rank. So he's the highest over all of creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we see the New Testament demonstrating that Jesus is that primary a uh, person of the Godhead doing the creating here in Genesis chapter 1. As we think about chapter 1 and we think about God, and really you, ha- you have to kind of think about the whole chapter as a whole. We're probably mostly familiar with it. But um, what are some other attributes of God that we can identify by looking at even just verse 1, but even the chapter as a whole? What are some attributes of God that we can pull out just from this first chapter? Ryan, <clears throat> he's good. He's a good creator. Yeah. What else? His creativity, absolutely. Out of nothing. Yeah. Absolutely. What else? What other attributes? We mentioned his omnipotence. He's all powerful. Really, you have to put all the omni attributes. Omniscient. He knows all. If he's able to 
create everything and, and uh, organize it, structure it. Um, he's, uh, what, omnipotent, omniscient, and what's omnipresent, yeah. So he's all these things. What else? What other attributes? Yes, he's existing prior to everything, right? In the beginning, there's literally nothing um, apart from God. Uh, and if, and I, I was reading some of the commentaries, and they were talking about um, how impossible it is to think about nothing. Because when you start to define nothing, when you say nothing is, then nothing ceases to be nothing, right? So God is there in the beginning, even when we look at John 1.1, 1, 1, it's the same idea. In the beginning, prior to time, was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. And verse 14 tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see um, this pre-existing, already there, uh, God. What else? What other attributes? He's eternal. He's infinite. We could say he's self-sufficient. Okay? He's not in need of anything. Um, he's, as we're going to talk about, the only uncaused cause. Doesn't have to give account to anyone or defend his actions to anyone. So we see uh, in Genesis 1.1, we see God already in existence before the beginning of creation. And so one of the questions we, uh, that was asked last week, we were talking about, what are some questions you hope to have answered as we talk through this? One of them was, who created God? Okay, Especially with kids, it's easy for kids to say, well, you know, we're pointing to creation, God created this, God created that. Um, our minds as created beings naturally tend to think, well, who created this or, or that? And so the question naturally is asked, who created God? Now, who would have an answer for that? What, what would you say if your child asked you, who created God? Right? Okay. Right? Yeah, he's always existed. He's, he has no creator. Um, and it is impossible for us to wrap our minds around that, just like the Trinity is one of those ideas that in our finite minds we cannot fully comprehend. Uh, God has no creator uh, and has always existed. Moses, as we talked about the author of Genesis, writes in Psalm 90, verse 2, from, uh, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever before you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, right? You existed before the uh, formation of anything. From everlasting, as far as you can look that way and further than you can comprehend and as far forward and, and further than you can comprehend, God is existing. God has always existed. So this might be a difficult concept to grasp, and sometimes there may be atheists who will seek to attack the Christian worldview to say that, uh, you know, God has to have a creator, this or that. Um, but really what we see, uh, Scripture is clear, God is not like us, he's not a human, he's not created like we are, he's transcendent, uh, which means he's above all of his creation, he exists outside of this time, space, matter that's being created in, in chapter 1, so he exists outside of that, and really what you see, what you find throughout history, philosophers, even ones that didn't hold to Scripture, have always believed there has to be an uncaused cause or an unmoved mover. In other words, we could ask the question, and let's say we came up with the answer, who created God? Well, this created God. 
Okay, well, who created that? Well, this created that. And we could go back further and further and keep asking the question, but eventually we'd have to get to a point where we'd say, okay, here's the uncaused cause. Here's that which is eternal. And so biblically, we don't have to go far. Who created God? No one. He is that uncaused cause. We see that in this very first verse. In the beginning, God's already on the scene. He's already existing. He's the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover that's created everything. Okay? So, some would say, you know, those with an atheistic, naturalistic worldview honestly have the same exact problem that we do. Okay? So, even if an atheist says, you know, who created God? Well, no one created God. Well, that's absurd to think that God's eternal. Well, here's the problem they have. They have to come up with an uncaused cause or an unmoved mover. And so for those who have this naturalistic worldview, what is it that they think is eternal? Does anyone know? What do they think has always existed that's the cause of everything? Matter, yeah. Uh, Matter. They see matter as, you know, you go back to... Okay, the Big Bang Theory, well, all this gas and all these things were there, and then it exploded and created everything. Well, where did that come from? And honestly, they have no answer. They have to believe that, well, it just was there. It just existed, right? Joseph. Yes. Right. So the point is we all have presuppositions, Okay. That's the key to realize. Whether you hold to a scriptural worldview or you hold to an atheistic worldview, you have presuppositions. So atheists will try to say, uh, well, take, you know, you can't use scripture. You've got to take, you know, that worldview apart and be unbiased. Well, but then we're basically having to put their glasses, their worldview on. Um, and, and so we're, there's not a common ground. There's not neutrality when it comes to our worldview, we all start with presuppositions. So those of a naturalistic worldview or an atheistic worldview start with a presupposition that there's no God, that matter has always existed, um, and then they go from there, right? So we've got to start with a proper presupposition, I think is your point, Joseph, and that's what we see in Scripture. In the beginning, God created, and we see all this laid out, and that worldview holds consistent throughout. It's the atheistic worldview that has to borrow from the Christian worldview when it comes to matters of morality or human dignity we talked about last week, okay? So, I love the way Henry Morris says it. Eternal God or eternal matter, that is the choice. The latter is an impossibility if the present scientific law of cause and effect is valid, since random particles of matter could not by themselves generate a complex, orderly, intelligible universe, not to mention living persons capable of of applying intelligence to the understanding of the complex order of the universe. A personal God is the only adequate cause to produce such effects. So just think about intelligence and things like that, things that are uh, abstract, that aren't tangible. How does matter in an explosive manner create order and create structure and create intelligence and morality? It can, absolutely, right? Um, you don't see a tornado go through uh, some area and you come back and there's a highly structured building that just, oh man, this tornado took all these mater- this wood and stripped it down and made this perfect log cabin. You don't see that. It's the opposite. It's destructive. And so what we see based on that and from the biblical presupposition is God, the ultimate source of intelligence, of morality, 
of what is good has created everything for his glory. So when we start with where the Bible starts, with an infinite, eternal God, our worldview remains intact, while the worldview of those who start with man, apart from God, collapses. Okay? Any questions before we move on to the next word in our first verse? Okay? Because this is a fun one. The next word is created. Okay? It is the Hebrew word bara. Okay? Um, it's only used, this is interesting, only used of God as it speaks to creating out of nothing. We came up with a Latin word, ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's what God is doing here. He's not taking matter and shaping it and creating from that. Of course, after he's spoken things into existence, we're going to see he begins to structure and organize. But he's creating, he's speaking, uh, you know, there's darkness and he speaks and there's light, right? He's creating out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So it confirms what we see in Genesis 1, that God is speaking creatively, creating out of nothing. So this is a word not used of any creature. This is only a word uh, speaking of God and how he creates out of nothing. Okay? Being created in the image of God, we do have creative abilities. I mean, you look at the marvels of architecture or different things that that mankind can build and it really speaks to the image of God that's in us but no person has ever created something out of nothing we're taking already existing materials shaping them using that creative ability but we're not just saying building and there's a building right if if we could do that we would have a bigger church building right now wouldn't we so we see this creative ability that only God possesses okay any questions about or thoughts or comments on that word created. Yes. Yeah, just, it's just kind of a, it, it's hard to build a case of, of uh, Trinitarianism just on chapter 1, but when you have the full view of the New Testament, it's easy to go back to the Old Testament and say, yeah, this is clearly, these are shadows of the substance that the New Testament fully uncovers when it comes to the Trinity. So, but very interesting for sure. So the next word we see in the beginning, God created Next two words we'll do together, the heavens and the earth, okay? The Hebrew word for heavens is shamayim, so it's just like Elohim, it's plural. So heavens is really the, the best way to, to translate it. Um, so let me ask this, what do you think this, this idea of heavens refers to? When God's in the beginning creating the heavens, what do we think that is speaking of? 
Space, absolutely. I think that's the best way to just will it down is space, okay? And we're going to see as creation continues through the six days, uh, the creative week, um, those heavens are divided up, different space. And we think about space in the sense of it's a place where there's no matter. Um, So, uh, you know, you have, you know, atmospheric space, you have outer space, you have the heavens in the sense of the sky, Right, so there's different aspects that this is speaking to, but ultimately, I think it's just he's creating space. Okay, um, next is the Hebrew word for earth, aretz, uh, and can is other times in Scripture translated as ground or land. Okay, so what do you think this is referring to? It's okay to say what the translator said too. Earth, right? It's it's simply God creating, and as we're going to see in verse two, this formless, uh, not yet given, uh, you know, mountains and hills and oceans and all that yet. It's just kind of a dirt ball, it seems like. So He's creating space and matter, we could say, right? This is the starting point of matter, and of course, there's going to be more things that are created through the week. But again, here in this first verse, what we're seeing is in the beginning creation of time, and we're going to see that fleshed out more as we talk about really the rest of this section. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. Well, this is a time indicator. We're going to talk about um, what is time and things like that. But here we see the creation of time, the creation of space, and the creation of matter. Okay, So in other words, God creates everything in totality. Um, there's a, a phrase, a Hebrew uh, way of uh, expressing a totality. Um, and so what we see is this idea of earth and heavens creates what they call a merism, and it's uh, showing two opposite sides to demonstrate a totality. So in other words, it's basically saying in the beginning, God created everything. He's created all of that and then fleshes out further what is involved in that creation and what how he shapes that creation, things like that. Okay. So in just 10 English words... And only seven in Hebrew. We didn't talk about the pronouns, things like that, or the ands, those, those uh, types of words, but just the key words. So ten English words, seven Hebrew words. We find so many profound truths about God and about the creation of everything. Okay? So they account for the uncaused cause of philosophy, and they account for the creation of time, space, and matter, uh, which physics would demand. So um, I like this suggested paraphrase from Henry Morris on how we could really uh, paraphrase or translate verse 1. So he says it this way, The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space-mass-time universe. Isn't that a cool way of paraphrasing it? The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space-mass-time universe. So this pushes it back against a lot of false beliefs when it comes to creation or the origins of the universe, the origins of man. So what are some false belief systems that this first verse refutes? Can you think of any? What are some uh, false views, false belief systems that this refutes just in one verse? The Big Bang Theory, which um, is not always atheistic, but it absolutely refutes atheism. In the beginning, God, right there. He's already there. He's He's... Uh, on the scene, it doesn't make any uh, 
explanation of how he got there or why he's there or, or try to explain, you know, uh, give a defense for him being there. It's just, in the beginning, God, right? So atheism's out the window. Uh, we could say materialism or naturalism with the Big Bang Theory would be out the window based on that because God's the one creating. It's not just a, uh, a chaotic explosion, right? It's organized uh, creative ability. What other false views can you think of that this pushes back against? Okay, evolutionary viewpoint. And again, that's very much like naturalistic, starting with um, a big bang and just random chance, things like that. Absolutely. And, and it, we're going to see that fleshed out a little bit more in chapter one, how that chapter, I believe, pushes back against that. We'll get into that even next week when we look at verse two and some different theories, because a lot of people will try to fit evolution into scripture. And I'm going to talk about some of those theories and why we can basically say, no, this isn't what scripture is teaching. Okay. Uh, a few others would be um, pantheism. Okay, uh, God is transcendent to that which he's created. He's not in everything. Pantheism would teach God is in creation. No, God is external. He's creating everything. He is the creator, not part of the creation. It refutes polytheism. We see one God. Uh, again, we made the case for Elohim referring to the Trinity, but still that's one God and three persons. Our minds cannot grasp that, but we see that clearly taught in Scripture. Materialism we talked about. Matter had a beginning. It refutes dualism because God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism because man's not found till the end of the chapter, right? Starts with God. God did this. God created. God said uh, it's not centered upon man. It's considered upon uh, or focused upon God. So, and, and we talked about evolutionism because God created all things. So Henry Morris says this, in essence, each of the, the above philosophies embraces all the others. And really, we could, if we wanted to boil it down, and he's going to talk about this, humanism is really at the core to a lot of these false belief systems, that it starts not with God, but it starts with us and our reasoning abilities and, and determining how everything was here instead of how God's revealed it to be. So, in essence, each of these above philosophies embraces all the others. Dualism, for example, is a summary form of polytheism, which is the popular, popular expression of pantheism, which presupposes materialism which functions in terms of evolutionism, which finds its consummation in humanism, which culminates in atheism. So the entire system could well be called the system of atheistic evolutionary humanism. Other philosophical ideas could also be incorporated into the same monstrous structure, naturalism, uniformitarianism, deism, agnosticism, monism, determinism, pragmatism, and others. All are arrayed in opposition to the great truth, marvelously simple and understandable to a child, yet inexhaustibly profound, that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So such a simple statement, but so much depth to this verse. And we, I have not done justice. We could unpack this even more, but I hope you get a good sense of what's being communicated here about who God is, about what's been created, about uh, what man in his own efforts has basically concluded as far as that uncaused cause, the creation of everything, it all points back to what God has done. So any final questions or thoughts before we close in prayer? We're going to get into verse 2 maybe a little further next week, but I want to definitely talk about next week some of the theories related to 
trying to fit evolution into Genesis 1 and letting really starts with letting the text speak for itself. Would we come to a conclusion that this was teaching evolution if we didn't have that presupposition? Um, so we're going to talk about that next week. But any other questions or thoughts before we close? Okay. Yes, absolutely. But I will... But I will say, to me, it takes a lot more faith to be an atheist <laughs> and to believe in evolution. Uh, there is a lot of faith involved. And that's, that's where we have to be careful, is we want to be pigeonholed into, well, you guys just have this blind faith. You don't know anything. This is what science is. Well, you're trusting in, you know, Ken Ham always says when it talks about creation, were you there? <laughs> like, we're making a lot of assumptions that things have continued that the rate of decay, different things have continued the same way for, they believe, uh, you know, millennia, right? For millions and billions of years. And so there's a lot of assumptions and there's a lot of faith involved, right? Just like with, well, where did all that matter come? Well, it just was there. Okay, well, that's faith. You're, you don't have any explanation for that, and we do. So we want to be careful when it comes to our worldview, not to say, okay, yeah, I'll put my worldview aside and try to come on common ground. There's no common ground when it comes to truth, right? It's what is your worldview, what's it based on? So that, that's a, an error when we, because what we do is when we leave Scripture, we've lost our, when, they're not leaving their assumptions, they're not leaving their worldview, right? Joseph. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and that's, that's again where we go back to what we just studied before with inductive Bible study. Exegesis. We're, we're going to start with what square scripture starts. We're going to pull the meaning, not read the meaning. Well, this is what I think happened, and let me find a way to cram that in there, right? We're starting with what God's Word says. We're looking then at science and evidence, but we're using this presupposition. And like we talked about last week with um, Jason Lyle, who is an astrophysicist. And when they start, before they started revealing what the James Webb telescope had discovered, he made, okay, well, this is what we should see based on a biblical worldview. And then, of course, those who start with evolution, this is what we should see. And what is found is confirms what he suggested. And now these, a lot of scientists are scrambling to say, man, this is not what we should have seen. When we see these clear images, they should be a lot less organized and, you know, red shifted light, all these technical things. But time and time again, like I said last week, science validates what Scripture says, okay? All right, we're out of time, so we will pick it back up next week. If you have any questions, uh, you can check with me after or we can bring them with you next week, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that, um, Lord, we can have an understanding 
of creation, of purpose, of morality, of goodness. God, you are the ultimate source of everything. And so, God, help us today as we gather to worship you, uh, the one who's created all, but also the one who's redeemed us um, and sent your son to save us from our sins. So, God, we just worship you today. May we magnify you and sing your praises and uh, hear from you today. And we pray all this today in Jesus' name.